This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, bringing you vital information to boost your health, your finances, and your rights. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Should we drop the monarchy? More Canadians than ever say yes. And the pandemic in poetry. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Toronto General Hospital is once again near the top of a list ranking the world's best hospitals. The over 200-year-old facility ranked number four, and three other Toronto hospitals made the top 100. Sunnybrook placed 26th, Mount Sinai 30th, and North York General is ranked 59th. Toronto General beat out 2,000 hospitals from 25 countries for the second year in a row. The Mayo Clinic snagged the number one spot on the list conducted by Newsweek, which says this is the most important list published yet because it was done in a pandemic year. Aspirin may prevent coronavirus infection and shorten the course of the disease. This according to a new Israeli study published in the Journal of the Federation of European Biochemical Societies. The researchers looked at 10,000 people and compared those who regularly take a low dose of aspirin for cardiovascular disease and those who don't. They found the former group was 29% less likely to become infected with the virus than the latter. That's the sound of a dying fridge compressor. We all know that household appliances just don't last like they used to. People have complained for decades that their appliances can't be repaired cheaply, and that makes buying a newer version a better value. But new legislation in the UK means companies legally have to make spare parts available to consumers under a new law called Right to Repair. It comes into effect this summer, and it could extend the lifespan of products by up to 10 years, and it will save the average consumer about 132 Canadian dollars a year. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Millions of people worldwide watched last week's explosive interview with Harry and Meghan. They accused the royal family of racism and callous indifference to a mental health crisis. It left many people questioning the value of the institution. Here at home, more Canadians than ever think it's time to drop the monarchy. I talked with pollster Mario Canseco, president of Research Co. You are finding that Canadians' desire to drop the monarchy is at an historic level. Yes, we've been tracking this question since 2009. And what's interesting is we usually only had about a third of Canadians who were flirting with the concept of having an elected head of state. Uh, but we see a big change uh, from last year. 
to this year. Uh, now we have 45% of Canadians who say they would like to have a Canadian elected as our head of state, and only roughly one in five who say that they would like to continue with the monarchy. Do you have a sense of what uh, precipitated these changes? Uh, what about the whole affair with Julie Payette, our governor general? Was that a big factor? I think it is. You know, we usually track these questions in February of each year. Uh, and the last 12 months have been particularly difficult for the institution of the monarchy. Obviously, we have the situation with Julie Payette, the allegations of workplace abuse happening at Rideau Hall. But we've also had, because of the pandemic, a complete absence of visits from the royal family. This is the type of event that gets national media coverage, that gets everybody talking about which member of the royal family is in Canada, which places are they visiting, and you have all those union jacks. Uh, we don't have any of that, of course, because we can't really travel that much, and there's no official visits um, because of COVID-19. Uh, we also have a lot of people who are at home because of the pandemic, and they're probably watching a lot of television, maybe watching some seasons of The Crown on Netflix. So you have all of these situations that aren't particularly great for the monarchy, and no way to counter that narrative, especially when it affects uh, something as, as deep, uh, as deeply important to Canadians as the, the office of the Governor General. I see that this poll was done before the infamous interview was done a week <laughs> before, March the 1st. Yeah. That interview aired on uh, the 7th, uh, a, a week ago, and it's been just a bombshell. Uh, do you have any sense or do you plan to track the influence of the Meghan and Harry in interview on this? It's interesting to look at it as something that you can track uh, at the same time. You know, I think if we were to ask about this tomorrow, uh, the response is going to be very visceral and it may not be representative of the way Canadians feel about things. Uh, I, I think I'd be more comfortable waiting another year and trying to track this in the same way that we've always done. Um, usually you have a situation, especially when something like this happens, there's that tendency uh, from some public opinion firms to, to ask about it almost immediately and try to find out what happened. Um, to me, this is something that is definitely better handled with nuance. The heritage of Britain is in our DNA as a country, but uh, there are fewer and fewer people that come from that culture and that heritage. And is that why uh, the support for the monarchy is dropping? It just d doesn't have an emotional resonance for a lot of people. I think it's a couple of factors. You know, one of them is we've consistently seen lower numbers uh, when it comes to support for the monarchy in Quebec, you know, they, and obviously because of their Francophone heritage, you know, there's not a lot of people there who will have the same opinion about the monarchy coming from Britain. Uh, because they are more likely to be sympathetic to France. So that is, that is always, that has always been there. Um, I think it's a problem that is more generational. You know, we have a lot of people who immigrate into the country and who end up swearing allegiance to the Queen, something uh, that, you know, Canadians who were born in the country don't have to do. Um, but it's also a, a difficulty in trying to connect with the next generation. We do see a little bit of a shift uh, Generation X more likely to be flirting with the notion of a Canadian as our elected head of state. And also we see that with millennials. So it, there's been a difficulty in establishing that emotional connection. We see it with the Queen. She has a favorability rating of 70%. Even people who don't like the monarchy like Her Majesty. So that is an important aspect. 
The problem is the future. Prince Charles has a favorability rating of 41%, so it's 30 points lower than the Queen. And even people who like the monarchy as an institution say that they would prefer to have Prince William in charge. Now, obviously, that is going to be very complicated to, to see happen, but it gives you an idea of just how difficult this decision is going to be and how tough the road is going to be for the monarchy to go back to the levels that it once enjoyed. There are big constitutional challenges. All the provinces have to agree. It's reopening a big can of worms with our constitution. Uh, a lot of people say uh, it's, you know, more trouble than it's worth, and that is very unlikely to happen. Did you get any sense of the reaction to that? I think there's definitely a situation where Canadians are aware of just how complicated this can be. You know, part of it is... Uh, you need to have a political party that is willing to exchange some sort of capital in actually pursuing this. And we just don't see anything like that coming from the three major parties. Uh, the Bloc Québécois has long wanted to do away with the monarchy, but as a party that, that ultimately um, is, uh, was born on the idea of succession, then you know it, it's definitely not a situation that is going to be palatable for most Canadians outside of Quebec. Um, I think there, there's, it, it's very difficult for something that is going to be happening at the constitutional level. Uh, but it doesn't mean that Canadians are not allowed to say that they would wish for something like this to happen. Um, and, you know, ultimately, I think it really depends on whether somebody wants to take this discussion seriously. And right now, even with all of the um, situations that we've had over the past few days because of the interview with Oprah Winfrey, we haven't seen any one of the federal politicians uh, from the three major parties openly discussing this. So it, it's a nice to have for those Canadians who are dreaming and yearning of an elected head of state uh, that is not a monarch. Um, but it's definitely much more complicated to do because of the way Canada has been established. Speaking of that interview, I'm looking at the favorability ratings. And you're right, Prince William is just a touch behind Queen Elizabeth and Prince Harry's favorable rating is 66%. Prince William's wife, the Duchess of Cambridge, she's at 64%. And Meghan, the Duchess of Sussex, uh, who gave most of the interview, is at 54%. Do you think those numbers would have changed? We have seen a little bit of the fluctuation on those numbers over the years. Uh, there's always been a consistency for William uh, coming at or near the level that Queen Elizabeth has. Uh, Harry usually a little bit further back. We've only been able to ask about Meghan for the past couple of years because she was not a member of the royal family. But the numbers have been remarkably stable. But it's also the case with, for the numbers when it comes to Prince Charles and Duchess Camilla. You know, their numbers have usually been lower than 45%. We've never seen Charles hitting a favorability rating of 50% on any of the surveys that we've conducted uh, going back to 2007. So it's definitely a more complex situation because you have people who like the institution, but I am particularly thrilled about who is coming next. Mario Canseco, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. It would be great to chat with you. That was Mario Canseco of Research Co. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, a poem for the pandemic. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, Canada's largest and most influential association fighting for the interests of Canadians as we age. Find out more at carp.ca.
One year on, the pandemic has found its way into culture and art. Toronto's Poet Laureate Albert Moritz captured the tragedy in long-term care in his poem, Exactly Here, the Marvel Spoke. You staggered from death to death. You dragged yourself from the silent window where an old face looked out and knocked with twig-like fingers at children trying to shout in through the crystal silence, Grandma, Babushka, Haljida, Babcia, Nani, Daddy. Abuelita, Nana, Bobe, Ba, Najimama, Nona, Pati, Jaja, Avo. The cries broke on all the walls and forbidden doors of well-meant homes of rest. How you long to go in to sit by them, hold them, each in their dying. How you longed for death to be again as it should be, the dying one among us. Al, you just made me cry. Well, <laughs> that's my job. <laughs> so tell me about the creation of this poem. Did you decide to write a poem about this? Were you asked to do this by the city? Uh, well, yes. The city does not require me. They did ask me. They don't require me to write anything, but they said they'd appreciate it, and they wondered if I wanted to. I had been thinking for the whole last year, oh, man, I should try to address the uh, pandemic in some way, but it's very, very difficult, a heavy task. And with so many aspects, how do you bring them all together and try even minimally to do justice for every for all the parts, you know? So I had been hesitating and hesitating and hesitating, but when this prompt came, I said, yes, you know, um, I've got to do it. And it just lit a fire under me and caused all the fugitive notes and thinking and feeling I'd been doing over the previous months to just come together. Um, so even so, it was a long process, but um, it just started to happen about, I don't know, two months ago when they when they asked me. How did you decide to focus on long-term care? Um, I thought that it needed some kind of focus. And the idea that old people, and I'm an old person, mm-hmm. were the uh, main victims and the main people that we've lost, and that Often they're just referred to as grandfather or grandmother. They might not all be grandfathers or grandmothers, but they're of that age, they're of that section of life. And some of the most moving stories that we've all seen, whether from this country or others, is the separation of people from their grandparents. And then the grandparents aren't people in the midst of life, so they're not exactly in the news anymore. They're not in positions of power and so forth. But this has thrown focus on how vital they are in families, how devastated people were to be separated from their, well, if they're the parents' generation, their fathers and mothers, or the the children's generation, their grandfathers and grandmothers. So for many ways, the grandmother seemed to me the essence and the, the symbol of this crisis in many ways. And so I wanted to put her at the beginning and in some languages that show all the variety and multi, uh, you know, cultural nature of Toronto, and also at the end as the person that we are dedicated to, that we hold with us, and the person who comes back to us, perhaps. 
for me, that was the most moving part when you had a stanza with the word for grandma in many languages. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's all grandma. Nani Dadi is Hindi, and Nani is the mother's side grandmother, and Dadi is the father's side grandmother. <laughs> so all of these are words for uh, grandmother. That was, I guess, a great inspiration to do that. Yeah, well, thank you. I, you know, it came out of, I don't even think I've got the Italian in here, but I'm half Italian and half Hungarian. That's where Naji Mama came from. That's uh, grandmother in Hungarian. And so I began thinking of that and thinking, well, I can't put in, I believe there's something like 140 different language groups in this city organized enough that they've got some kind of organization that liaises with the mayor's office. So <laughs> if I had put them all in, I would have... Uh, I would have done nothing but recite the word grandmother in all those names, which would have been a good poem, too. But I put in a representative sample, I hope. Yeah, I think you did. What do you hope that this poem will do? It really was an attempt to put into poetry the essence of what's happened, the separation, the deaths, the fear, the despair. And on the other hand, the unremitting effort against it and the keeping up of spirits and of, of love and, uh, and work, the work to find solutions, the work to keep going, and the feeling behind that, an experience like this, more or less proves to us that there is spirit, there is the withness of the, the dead person, that person's survival, and the sense that that person is not only here, but is the whole reason and center of why we work and what we hope to achieve. You are more than the helpless universe. We reach and bring everything that has burst, broken, died, left us, fled from us, everything frozen in the space of death back into the loving quiet of a brook returning in late winter to the young life of purling water. It's March. Winter kisses spring. We don't have far to go, only from dusk to morning, to gather the fragments of disaster in music and tears. I see, hear, love the men and women all around me. I'm with them. I am here. I hug them in the body of my song. Albert Moritz, Poet Laureate of the City of Toronto, thank you so much. Thank you, Libby. That was Albert Moritz's poem to commemorate one year since the beginning of the pandemic. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Huddy, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.